Years ago, I was teaching a guy how to use this computer. An older man, he was writing a book. He wanted to write a book about the word fuck. Yeah. And he'd <laughs> been in the army, and he knew that it was it was used all sorts of different ways. And he was a pretty old guy. And I was over there once a week, and he didn't really use his computer, so he wasn't learning it much. But I kept going there because it was, you know, a few dollars, and I was in between jobs. And I was in his house one day, and... I looked around, I didn't see any radio or music or anything. I said, what music do you listen to? I don't listen to music. <laughs> and that, rare. that has been over 10 years since he said those words. And i it's not just rare. I cannot conceive of it. I, I can conceive of hatred. I can conceive of, of dictators. I can conceive of <laughs> mass murderers. I can understand it to some degree, but not listening to music, I can't conceive of that. And it's not just personal. It's like, how do you not have music in your life? It's like when I teach certain classes or, or other types of music-related things, it's like, I always point out, you know what this sounds like. You may not know what it is, but you've heard it because you have so much music around you all the time. It's on mm. TV. It's everywhere. So when I go, bum, bum... You may not know it's a perfect fourth or whatever, but you know that sound because you've heard it. He has no music in his life. (laughs) It's creepy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. That's John Binkoff, best known as the guitar player for the seminal San Francisco punk rock band Victims. Victims were hugely important to the punk rock music scene in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 70s and early 80s. There's probably no other band in history that had played the Fab Mab, the Mabuhay Gardens Rock Club, as much as the Victims had played. I got a chance to see one of the Victims' last shows sometime in the mid to late 90s. Club Boomerang in San Francisco on the Haight-Ashbury. I think I drug uh, my drummer there. We checked these guys out, and they were just phenomenal. Not too long after that, I actually ran into John. He was working at a music store in Richmond, California. John and I got to talking. He was in a band called Jelly Brains at the time. I told him I was in a band. Next thing you know, we were playing a couple shows together. I hadn't talked to John in a while, but I decided to give him a call and see if he'd want to come down and do an interview. We talked to John about the early victims' history their resurgence in the mid-90s, the Fab Mab itself. We also talked to John about his current bands, Jelly Brains and the Pirates. Hey, John, I'd like to thank you again for stopping by. Let's get right into it. Please describe your relationship with music for us. Music is part of my daily life pretty much all day long. I teach guitar. I teach uh, classes at a university in the Bay Area. I teach at Holy Names University play in two bands. I'm always striving to learn more music and learn about music and improve and just part of my nature. It's uh, it's my skin. It's not my second skin. It is my skin. And I've done music all my life. I was three years old sitting underneath the piano, you know, <laughs> and uh, everybody in the family played some piano. And As far as music in general, what does music mean? Not just to me. Music is probably maybe the only thing that that can reach people on a real cosmic or basic level it can actually just 
get right to you, even if you don't know the words. You know, when people go look at art, sometimes I think, and I, I'm guilty of this, that they look at art, and if they don't have an art background, they're looking at it, trying to figure out what they think or what they're supposed to perceive. Or some people don't read books, but everybody listens to music almost. And, you know, like Bob Marley, you know, he's just trying to get, he wasn't just this hippie love Rasta guy. He was actually trying to reach people a special way. And so it's just something I feel the same way about. That um, It doesn't matter what type of music, whether it's angry music or silly slapstick music. It's it's communicating on multiple levels simultaneously. Oh, very That's what it means. <laughs> it means How did everything. you... How did you get interested in music as a small boy? You said you were about three years old and you were I, already playing the piano. I don't know. Okay. You know, it often comes that people um, will say that they had no choice or that music chose them. And I wish it was that clear for me. I just did it. I remember having my toy guitar. I remember having toy other instruments and then saying to my parents, I want a guitar. Could I have a guitar? I want to learn to play guitar. And they said, well, okay, but you have to learn to play piano first. And this was probably fourth or fifth grade or something like that. So I took some piano lessons for a few years, and now I can play piano. And then I started playing guitar, and I stopped for one year. Right around seventh grade, I stopped and uh, had a party at my house. And I was still playing piano, and I was trying to impress the girls by yeah. playing silly little piano pieces. <laughs> and my friend picked up this guitar that was still there and started playing songs and everybody was paying attention to him and I went back to my guitar and haven't stopped since. <laughs> he said, ah, that's the that's what I want to be playing. Well, probably it is anyhow, but yeah. I was just having trouble with it, you know, not having, uh, you know, developed hands and all, but went back and then I just fought my way through every challenge, you know, just, I'm going to get this. Yeah, the piano, that's what I started with, probably around fourth or fifth grade. I took like two years of lessons then my mom had passed away, and we ended up getting rid of the uh, oh. uh, of the um, piano. That kind of did set its hooks in me a little bit. And yeah. uh, when I got into college, that's when I kind of picked up, you know, getting into music again. And I, t- I started with bass lessons, and uh, not for very long, because pretty much at that point, you could just pick it up by ear and uh-huh. uh, just get together with some friends and start jamming. And so around nineteen or so, eighteen or nineteen, yeah. you started. That's when you just decided, "I'm going to play." Yeah, yeah, cool. definitely. That's the age where I got serious. I was in bands in junior high and high school, and I was the more serious person in those bands, particularly by the time I got to high school and I could actually play a little bit. But when I left home and got to college age, um, yeah, I said, oh, that's how you make your hand do that, you know, and all that. I said, yeah. What were your influences in your early years? Right, right Early influences? I, I'm just all over the map. I mean, growing up, there was still AM radio, and AM radio, Top 40 radio, then included everything. I mean, you could hear Ray Charles and the Monkees or, you know, Strawberry Alarm Clock or whatever. It was all over. Where I was from, radio was really eclectic, so I was hearing little-known groups from, you know, I was hearing Bob Seger when it was Bob Seger in The Last Herd. Yeah, okay. I mean, the really early, early Bob Seger, just for example, (laughs) you know, when... Uh, and that sort of implanted, you know, listening to underground rock and obscure garage rock. I mean, I I heard the Sonics when they were, you know, no one else had heard the Sonics and things like that. And then I discovered obscure Detroit groups like the Rationals. And, you know, and then it was, there was pop music and I grew up with some classical piano. Living in the South, there was a lot of country, 
And then eventually I ended up in Gainesville, Florida, and there was Tom Petty starting up. And then there was blues and funk, and then I discovered jazz. And it just all just kept coming to me. I guess I was a sponge. And yeah. I just wanted, I said, that's cool. And I discovered Thelonious Monk. You know, I was like, <laughs> wow, that's some strange piano playing. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. different, you know. Somehow all that sort of, it didn't exactly coalesce into something that sounded like other people, which you would expect with that many different things. But nevertheless, when I heard... You know, first I heard the Stooges, and I go, all right, wow, this makes so much sense to me, even though I still liked other, you know, more highfalutin music. Yeah. I heard that, and I go, oh, it just, this zap, just like that. <laughs> and then, you know, it wasn't too many years later, after learning how to play some Stooges songs, there was the Ramones, and go, that makes sense. This is Stooges and Bubblegum. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> then it was... Um, Right after that, then I heard the Sex Pistols and go, well, Johnny Rotten, he kind of scares me a little bit. Boy, that guitar. Yeah. That's that's some awesome guitar playing. And, <laughs> you know, first three Ramones albums, God Save the Queen, Pistols album, that just, it branded me for life. Even though I eventually I went to UC Berkeley and got a degree in music and then Davis got a master's in music, that uh, just, that's tattooed on me. And that doesn't go away, even though I kind of lost it to a degree when I was in college studying music, um, that that just stuck with me. And then the, the post-punk stuff, like uh, Wire. Oh, Wire's a great band. Uh, yeah. And then Past Wire, uh, a group, I guess they were from Sweden, Refused. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like, wow, this is like just taking things and just skewing them, you know. So that, and then, you know, um, I'm in graduate school, and all of a sudden, from Seattle, there's this like, thing happening and yeah. you know <laughs> nirvana and i go hey wake up you're done with school yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that was it nirvana came out and all of a sudden this is funny how th- these things kind of conjoin in, in in ways that it's like you know it's time to do something else and while i'm in graduate school studying music composition steve victim is working at um masa's restaurant he's a chef and there's other guys there. And somehow they found out that he had been in The Victims. He's talking about it. He usually doesn't talk much about himself. And he fa- they found out that we had recorded an album that had never been released. Yeah, you recorded in like 1982 or 1982, something? correct. And this is early 90s, and it had just been sitting. We didn't finish it. We fell apart. And it was a horrible mix because everyone was coked out and whatever. Yeah. And um, they said that they were looking to put together a little record company. They wanted to put the album out. And so that entailed a whole series of heroic (laughs) efforts. Here's a song by the victims. Well, I used to be tapes were in horrible condition and we had to do a process called baking the tapes and we found this guy down in Hayward that had a little 
contraption in a trailer because the tapes after a while I don't, I don't know what, if you know about this stuff um, the oxide starts to come off and the tapes start to stick to each other so you're losing your recorded material yeah okay and so there's a way of putting them in either a convection oven or a, a blow dryer which we did to some other tapes over at Fantasy Studios where it can lock them in long enough that you can run them through a tape machine and get them onto some other media so we rescued this album. Now, mind you, we'd already recorded other material that had been released, but we wanted to get this album out. We uh, managed to get the tapes good enough that they would run through a tape machine. And Kenny Fink, the same guy who recorded the single with us on 415 Records, is a musician, and we had done a lot of other things with him. And he agreed to help us mix it. So we took it to a studio. Actually, Kenny and I, the other guys, were not as involved. Took it to a studio and put the tape on, and while it's running through the machine, you can see the tape shredding. Oh, it's no. literally falling apart. Yeah. We got it into, I don't remember, it was I think it was ADAP, and then we remixed it. And then that album came out, and then um, because the album was coming out, um, this is obviously leaving out all early victims' history, we reformed, and... Uh, played together for a good handful of years. We were probably one of the first groups from the MAB era of San Francisco punk to actually reform. We started playing a couple of shows, and it was going good because we'd all grown up some. Yeah. The guys, um, Dave and John, who um, were helping us and being young supporters, said we should make a new record. So we went down to some studio in Hayward and uh, recorded another four-song EP. Mm-hmm. So four more songs to, to our repertoire of songs. And then we released that as a double EP with the, uh, the uh, Midget EP, which was actually quite a bit of a collector's item, the original EP with My Baby's a Midget on it. And we released that on a new label. And that got us going even a little bit further. We started playing some shows and... More shows and more and more shows, and we're happy. Nina's still living in Long Beach, so she's commuting up here uh-huh. for every show. And airplane fares were a lot cheaper in the mid '90s. And uh, we're playing um, El Rio, and we played pretty good, pretty good show. And we'd already played Gilman and a bunch of other places. And this guy standing over the side of the stage says, "I really like your sound, and I have a little record company, and I'd like to put out something from you." And that was Mike Millett. Yeah. From Broken Records. And so we decided we would put together a compilation CD of all but one of our songs that we'd ever recorded. So the White Girl single on 405, um, Midget EP, the album, plus some live tracks, plus some stuff with the original guitar player, a live song, and put that on the CD. The only song that's not on the CD is the original version of Ballad of Pincushion Smith, because that was on subterranean records from our dear friend steve tupper yeah and we wanted him to still have that yeah this is on well that's and so that's you know he could still have it because he's a real great guy i mean he's the guy that recorded flipper in the beginning and all yeah so um and the cd came out and then wow just all we're hearing from people all around the world internet is kind of slow still then it, there was certainly no myspace or anything there was iuma internet underground music archive and we're getting emails and orders from everywhere. It was, it was really cool. And that went really good, but then Nina got cancer. We stopped for a little while, 
she had surgery and some chemotherapy and other stuff. And we played a bit more afterwards. And then she needed to move out of Long Beach. It was a bad environment. She moved up here and we played a couple more shows and then that was it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I was going to comment on was is that you started Victims, I'm guessing, in the, like, what, 75, 76, somewhere around there? Mm, actually, the roots of it are Even probably maybe. 77. Okay. And it became pretty formal around 78. Okay. That unit was in flux pretty quickly. Um, there's Jay Davis on guitar, Luke Verter, our same drummer as always, on drums, a guy named George Ritter on bass. The three rhythm session guys played together for a little while, and then they found Nina through a sign on a bulletin board, and she just blew him away, and that yeah. was it. She's in the band. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that lasted for a while, but the bass, George, wasn't working out the way it was. So Steve Riccablanca came in on bass, and I already knew Steve for a few years before that from jamming in East Bay. Not too long, maybe a half year after he joined, even though they recorded um, the original version of Ballad of Pincushion Smith, Jay, for some reason, just whatever, just took off and was gone. He just disappeared? Uh, kind of disappeared. I don't know. He was a, a very unique personality and mm-hmm. just was doing things differently. And um, the band at that point had the, the EP, the four-song EP with um, Roma Rocket and My Baby's a Midget and Hard Case and Too Bad, and the one song on the SF Underground EP with Flipper and the Tools. And it looked, you know, for them, it probably was looking good, but Jay, for whatever reason, and so they auditioned a few people, and that would be in 79, and then that wasn't working, so Steve remembered me, and he didn't know that I had this strong grounding and really just raw rock. He yeah. just, he knew me from playing funk jams and uh-huh. other things like that. <laughs> and um, he called me up and said, yeah, hi, this is Steve. Um, I'm in this band. He didn't tell me anything. He said, I'm in this band and we got to do something about this guitar player problem. <laughs> That's what he said <laughs> at first. And then he told me who it was and I found out who they were and I grabbed the records and learned them a little bit and then he showed me some stuff and uh, came over to the house and I figured out right away that you didn't play bluesy leads and psychedelic stuff and play single note power chord things. You had to play full on hard guitar. Yeah. Because I already knew from the Ramones and the Stooges and other stuff. This is like, you know, garage rock. This is a major part of my background. And Nina says, yeah, I like him. He has a real full sound. I said, I said, thank you, Nina. She turns to me and says, it's Nina. (laughs) I'm sure lots of people made that mistake. (laughs) That's why she spelled it differently. She grew up, it was spelled N-I-N-A. And since she's Czech, her background is Czech, it's pronounced Nina. So she changed it to N-Y-N-A. And I didn't ever make that mistake again because <laughs> she was an amazing person just so charismatic and so strong despite her inner softness you know another event with Nina early on we played three shows two of them for my first show was at the East Bay Center um, California College of Creative Arts and then we played uh, SF Art Academy then we played a show down in Monterey 
Then we came up here, and we're going to play another show. It was a big show. It was at Temple Beautiful. The plugs were on the bill. Uh, the Wounds, and uh, I can't remember who else. And it was a good show. It was a big one. And I had never played on a big stage. I'd been in bands before, but I'd never played on a big stage. And um, I'm all nervous about this. And and sound check. I never had a sound check like that before. And Nina comes up to me, and she's a little drunk. I can smell the alcohol on her breath. And she comes to me and says, John, I beg of you. It's a big show. Don't play any of that psychedelic shit. <laughs> it's like, I didn't think I was doing that much, but she just wanted even more yeah. like that. And I got it. I just said, I'm going to sure. I just played even harder. And my guitar's in the monitors, and it's coming blasting at me. It all turned then. That was it. From then on, we were on. One, two, three, four. Kennedy's heard about us and they start putting us on shows and we start playing the map. We probably, with the exception of the Witnesses and some other bands, we played the map as much as anybody. Yeah. We were just, call us up, we're ready, we'll come, you know. Um, earlier bands, like the Avengers, they probably played there a lot, but that was such a short time for them, mm-hmm. you know. And the Dead Kennedys kind of moved on past that. The Nuns probably played there a lot at one point, but we had a long history there. I mean, we played there the entire first round of victims from 78 to, you know, 82. And from 80 to 82, we played almost every month there, practically, for at least a period of time. Which actually kind of led to a a little bit of a, maybe, misconception on our part. We thought we just should play a lot. So we played everywhere in town, constantly. We didn't go on tour. Yeah. We did some mini tours, but we didn't tour because we were not part of that um, Roots Connection that like um, Black Flag was developing, you know, like sleeping on floors and stuff. We were just mm-hmm. these little innocent homebodies. Yeah. <laughs> but we played a lot and we got really tight. Even though we were kind of a little bit on our own world. Did you guys all live together in the house? Actually, were- everybody did but me. Okay. Um, Lou had this house on Valley Street or 27 Valley Street, I think, in San Francisco. And eventually, Nina moved in, and then Steve moved in from Oakland, and I was there four or five days a week. Yeah. And came home late from a gig, and I'd sleep on a mattress somewhere. So, we were there. We lived together, pretty much. Yeah. Which is really interesting, because uh, we actually caught some shit from this, from some people who had different opinions. But after we were going on pretty good, somehow or other, we got connected with Spencer Dryden, the drummer for... Jefferson Airplane. Yes. 
and he was helping us some being fatherly or something. <laughs> and uh, we got tainted by that many years later as though this shows they weren't punk or something. But um, we're a San Francisco band and that's just part of it. Just like the hippie bands would be influenced by the beatniks and stuff. But he said, one of the downfalls of the airplane is when they started moving apart. And actually, I read later that on Fulton Street, they were already falling apart, but yeah. that's for many other reasons. But he said, as long as you guys live together, it's going to be good. But that might have been just a romantic thing from him. Uh-huh. But yeah, we had a house and we practiced in that house. We didn't. There was no rehearsal studios for us. We had a sub-basement. In other words, the basement of the house, we were underneath that. It wow. was probably a wine cellar or bomb shelter or something. <laughs> and there was a hatch. There was not a doorway. There was a hatch. You had to lift the hatch and go down some steps and then close the hatch, and we were locked in. That is very funny. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great memory, and that I can very well visualize because it was there so many days a week. Hot and sweaty and smelly, and we didn't care. Yeah, we had yeah. a terrible PA, and for a long time, I didn't know what the words Nina was singing, because you certainly couldn't hear him on stage. I think we did really well. We really created some really good sounds, and I'm very proud of what Victims did. We wrote the stuff together, and we'd be downstairs in the basement practicing, and Nina would be upstairs listening and making words while we're working out the rhythm parts. Ah, neat. And come down. <laughs> the other, other funny part of this story is, I think on one side, one house, nobody lived there. On the other side, it was this old deaf couple. Wow. So it was almost like God said, this is this perfect little thing for you to create your chemistry. How long did that last? Oh, years. 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 Oh, years. Oh, four years. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the memories from the Mabuhai days that you can recall? Oh, Anything Lord. significant? You know, maybe not one specific thing, just the whole environment. And um, I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago and why the Mab was different. And one of the main things is it, not just the people there, it had a personality. You know, Dirk Dirksen was there most of the nights. The place was open seven nights a week, four bands, every night of the year, practically. That's a lot. That's and pretty intense, yeah. <laughs> and he's there, and he's got the, his personality, which is part of the whole gestalt of the thing. He's on stage introducing bands a lot of the time. And it was an environment. You go to any other club, it's a club. It's not the same. And so little things like you walk in, there's pinball machines there, you walk down this little narrow spot, there's the tables here, but there's a wall here in the bathroom here, and you're trying not to get burned by the new wave chicks walking by with their cigarettes trying to be cool. You go, hey, watch that cigarette there. <laughs> and there's the back door that the security guard is letting their friends in. Yeah. You know, there's the stage which leaked. Um, so sometimes there was buckets on stage. <laughs> there was a sound system which you're never quite sure how good it was going to work and it was awesome because the way the whole thing was set was to be this environment the stage was only this high off the ground it was calculated that it would be high enough for people to see but not separate you too distantly from the audience and brick walls in the back nice good wood floor and it was just punk rock as it should be without the attitude of this is what punk rock is was it really considered a punk rock club? I mean, was that term uh, used a lot to describe it back then? Or was it just to a... certain people, you would say that, yeah. too. You know, if you to outsiders, this is a punk rock club. To us, this was just home. Yeah. I mean, you could go there. We had spaghetti feeds on Sunday, you know. People would just, who's playing? I don't know. Let's just go. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, you went there, they were your friends, it was family, it was the community center, so to speak. I mean, later on, there was Epicenter Bookstore and stuff like that. That was where you went. Mm-hmm. And when you think about some of the major bands that, you know, Devo played there, you know, Blondie played there, you just can't imagine the CD place and bands that are so legendary would be playing there, but um, yeah. And from my experience, I I don't I just miss it so much. Um, there are lots of documentaries about various things from the San Francisco scene, but and there's supposedly one coming out about Dirk Dirksen and maybe one mm-hmm. about the Mab. But what I would love to see is just some photos of the club, not the bands, yeah, yeah. not the dressed up people in the alleyway next to it. I want to just see the place again, but that's you know you can't go back. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It did come back uh, as a club. Of, I played there. Yeah, what was a Velvet Lounge? <laughs> was that what it was called? Well, uh, it was something like that. And yeah. then um, two people, Tambra and uh, I forgot the other guy's name, actually tried to get it up into be Mabuhe Gardens, but the the times had changed so much that it just wasn't going to happen. But the actual physical environment was just off. Yeah. You know, there was first of all there was a pole, a column right in the middle of the stage. Yeah. yeah. It was just support the sagging ceiling, mm-hmm. but it was it was lost. It was good to be back. Um, I played there twice actually when it was that, and it was nice. I got to like f- touch the ground and all. And, <laughs> and it, was, eh, eh. It, re- it really taught me why am I living back there? I'm, you know, it's against the way I normally am anyway. So yeah. you know, it's just gone, and that was okay. Yeah, I remember going there. Uh, Ginger Coyote and uh-huh. her band White Trash Debutantes was filming a scene there for that movie Tweak oh, City. Right. And uh, that was pretty neat just to be in there and checking it out. But I'm sure it has none of the feel at all. I mean, it was very, uh, it looked like it was a dance club at the you know that point. Yeah. And um, then they tried to change it more retro, try to go back even more so from that. But you can't. Um, you would have to smudge it up good and even so without... You know, the right times. You know, things were very different then. Mm-hmm. So, um, people changed. And personally, me and others being older, you don't have that same innocence. Victims, how did you guys stop playing on your round one? Um, I guess it was probably around '82 at that time frame. Yeah, '82. Um, it was. We were just oblivious to things that were affecting us personally, and we were trying to make this album. And there's a lot of stress in the band, and there were drugs and things too. We had played some really good shows in the fall of '81. We opened up for the Ramones, and it, you know, it, was, it was great. And we started to get well. We really are special. And we're making the album, but it was still cracking at the seams. And Nina was getting interested in heavy metal. So she and the guitar player from Lude, the Lude, Bob Click, formed a band called Murder. 
Yeah. And she just needed to go off. But before she did that, she was already thinking about that. But she played in a couple other bands for a couple weeks here and there. But she left the band, basically. And, you know, various frustrations. And I mean, when you're in a band, you know, four or five years is a really long time. Yeah. You know, you think about a number of bands that you've thought about, or it's like, that was, that's their entire lifespan. The Beatles were exceptional to last 10 years, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, you know, three-year career, total. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Sex Pistols, how long was that? A minute and a half? <laughs> exactly. You know? <laughs> you know, depending on which bass player, um, you know, if you want to measure it from one point or another. Mm-hmm. The Ramones are, were remarkable that they stuck it out so long. And, and then, you know, through our friends John and Dave, who were interested in putting out the album, then we got started again. And God bless them. They got us up and... It was so gratifying, the validation that we got coming back and people recognizing, you know, you had something or you are something or you guys are really cool. And then when the CD came out because of Mike Millett's help, it's like, that was extraordinarily validating. It's like, and that's what you really want. You want people to appreciate what you do. And oh, yeah. We were lucky. We got that. And we were really blessed, actually, to um, have those extra moments and on top of that, we're really blessed that even though Nina's not with us in flesh, we're still together. I mean, I talk to Steve regularly. I'm actually singing on a song of his um, that he's recording, and we hang out together. And I don't think a lot of bands can say that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's special. It's really good when you can be friends with all of your people in your band and, then, yeah. and keep hanging, yeah. hanging you're out. You're not just in a band with them. Yeah. You're, you're tight. They're yeah. your brother or sister, you know, and you care about them. And I, I think it was real interesting to me that here's a band that's coming back doing music that everybody is basically doing now at that time frame. And it must it must be kind of neat to see that, that, uh, wow, look at the stuff that we were doing, uh, you know, 20 years ago or close to it, uh, that really is now caught on in a whole other wave um, of bands doing stuff. Well, it was actually inspiring. Actually, yeah. when we heard Nirvana's song, Territorial Pissings, and go, Wait a minute, those are the same chords as in progression and rhythm as what's the girl to do? How'd that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Um, it was cool. Victims were in an unusual and maybe uncomfortable niche that um, we weren't like a lot of bands, particularly bands that came a little after us. We never were able to fit into the hardcore uniform. We, first of all, had a lot of other musical instrument I- interests. And um, we were just ourselves. And in a sense, that's the essence of punk rock anyway. But um, even so, the fact to see kids coming up when Gilman started years ago and see kids doing it for themselves, that was great. It's like, wow, I don't really belong there. That's theirs, but that's great. Yeah, yeah. And they caught it and they got it. And uh, bless them, they've more or less stuck with it, you know. Yeah, it's very impressive. It's not like a phase of disco or something that you know probably is not going to make a resurgence. No, I mean, <laughs> it, is not, it is not the Mab because, first of all, it's different. There's not the alcohol and yeah. other things that are a little bit freer, and they have to keep their policies and all. But nevertheless, the spirit of independence is, is great. you know. And there are other places in things, but what happened is when that network, the DIY network, opened up further and further and was in Minneapolis and other places, um, it just created uh, a world of music that didn't exist before. And even though it got really quiet 
in the late eighties, mm-hmm. it didn't really go away. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on, when did when did Nirvana start? Eighty seven? Yeah. Something? Same time when, you know, Soundgarden and those guys were kind of starting right. it up too. And so how much of a gap is that? That's not really much of a gap. It's just quieter. Yeah. And music cycles will always be like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I guess the that eighties period was mainly where the Hair metal bands were probably making it. Um, and that's all a media music. thing. Yeah. And it's, that's no different than yeah. New Wave. You yeah, know, yeah. when Seymour Stein said, I need a name for this. It's, <laughs> we can't say punk rock. That's going to scare people. So we'll call it New Wave <laughs> yeah. or something like that. And, you know, as long as there were these big record companies, there was going to be like that. Maybe now it's much more open and there's so much more variety and there's all the various other outlets so bands don't necessarily need to conform so much. Maybe there won't be this predominant style anymore, like the hair metal thing, mm-hmm. you know, or disco or something. Did you guys have aspirations for taking your music to another level, like uh, labels? Well, see, li- that probably is one of the reasons that we failed. You know, mm-hmm. uh, whether you conceive of us failing is, is, you know, obviously subjective. We did want to get major label. We didn't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And part of the deal was when we made this album that didn't come out was we recorded on spec, which means we would give the recording studio a certain amount of points or something if it sold, and we would shop the tapes. But we're up in San Francisco. There's no labels here for that type of stuff. And we didn't have management of any real decency. We had no publicists, no lawyers, nothing. And just... Word of mouth, and we're not going on tour, so we sort of fell off because it, it it's skewed. You know, you're trying to get attention, but you don't know how to get attention. And we didn't look like punks in a certain way. You know, we were mm. adapting to a little bit earlier model. So, yeah, we did have aspirations, and um, we didn't know what they were. We were young and dumb and <laughs> yeah. clueless as fuck. One time, Sandy Perlman, record producer, did The Clash, came and saw us, and he came and talked to Nina, and she sort of blew him off. And that may have, may have been a mistake, maybe, or maybe not, because he may have fired the rest of the band and kept her. Yeah. And and all that. And uh, I don't know. We were dedicated to to each other, and we knew that Steve was a great bass player, and I was a great singer. I was not that great a guitar player, and Louis drum the way Louis drummed, which is certainly hard, very, very hard, yeah. but maybe not in a good in some other ways. And um, we're playing music that was getting increasingly a little bit off the grid. I don't know. Nobody stepped in. And that just happens to many bands. No. You know? Yeah. Later on, I think bands started to look at things more in like a template. You do this, you do that, you know. Every now and then you get a, a really off the mark band like the replacements who just fuck this is what yeah, we do and we're gonna be drunk on stage and whatever this is the way we feel tonight too bad <laughs> and they wrote great songs yeah yeah but i think past that i think once things got like wow we can make money hey grunge you know mm. or metal you know we just i want to be successful and people started codifying themselves and mm. the music really got hurt by that you know yeah, it always does i think yeah well, I think your guitar playing is amazing. I, I really enjoy uh, listening to it. Well, thanks. I, I, I love playing guitar. Yeah. Um, every now and then I think, you know, I'm of a certain age, and why am I still doing this? But then I go, wait a minute, I, I have to do this. I can't play guitar 
like this at home. Yeah. That's yeah. not fun. I, yeah. I know many, many people that either stop playing or that's all they ever did and go, no, I have to at least play with a drummer. Turn it up and play. Yeah. You know, so Janine and I will probably play music forever, you know. Yeah. You know. Yeah, well, that gets right into the next topic and question. How is the Jelly Brains doing these days? You want to talk about that, a little bit about the history of the the Jelly Brains and how you and Janine met? And there is overlap with that, too. Yeah. What happened is, after I decided not to be in graduate school anymore, I was working in a music store, of which you know. Yeah. (laughs) Music Works in El Cerrito, Mm -hmm. where we met, I do believe. And this guy came in one day, and I looked at him, and I said, this guy's from my tribe. (laughs) <laughs> and his name was Al Duncan, and also known sometimes as Dirty Al. And I got to talk to him. I said, you know, rah, 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 rah. you know, it's like, yeah, Mav, you know, Johnny Thunders, blah, blah, blah. He said he had a band. Did I want to come jam with him? And it, like, it had been a few years since I'd played in a band. And even though I was doing music, you know, studying it and other things, but I wasn't in a band for a few years. So went to jam with him at Lennon Rehearsal Studios in San Francisco. And I think he told me a little bit about Janine. I don't remember. We played, and I looked at her, and she seemed a little timid at the time. She's definitely not a timid person, <laughs> but I think then she might have been. She's she's like Nina. She's a force of nature. Yeah. We played, and we started learning these songs, and it was going to a certain degree, but I could sense that I was getting more up, getting my juices flowing. This is right after Victims Round 2 had stopped. Because okay. I was, had brought Nina up to stay up here rather than Long Beach and she was staying with me for quite a long time but victims were not able to do anything more and I needed to do something and so I met up with Al and then Janine and then Al was not clicking with Janine and he said listen go rehearse with her and help her out so I did and go there's no problem here (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we stuck and we kept rehearsing by ourselves for a long time and then one day we were in the rehearsal studio and we're just talking and stuff and she's German so not all her phrases are clear and some of them are just different than ours and she said I really really like jelly bread <laughs> jelly bread <laughs> jelly bread <laughs> jelly brains we're jelly brains I ran down the hall literally ran to the hall came back in the room and I had half the words in my mind yeah became Jelly Brains, and then I put a D apostrophe, just so in case there was some other band called Jelly Brains. And I thought, oh, cool, it's French. (laughs) And then we proceeded to get better and went through um, a few bass players. And right now, our last bass player wanted to really do his own project. And so we'd play with him before, and then we played with him again, and he's a very good bass player. But he wants to do his thing, and we're 
right now without a bass player and we're starting to look but we're more busy right now moving into another rehearsal studio so it's hard to set up rehearsals when you don't really have your space set yet yeah very much so (laughs) yeah (laughs) what year did the jelly brains form officially roughly officially oh good lord well not officially. i met janine in 99 okay and it was touch and go for most of that year and then in 2000 it got more serious and sometime during that year, I guess we got very serious. And then I think in 2001, we met our first bass player and played our first show. The first show we played was at a, quote, Battle of the Bands at the Pound, this heavy metal I, club. I know that well, yes. And we played, and Janine was, like, so blown she could hear her drums in the monitor. I came off stage, and I said, I can't believe I just sang. <laughs> to an audience I hadn't been the singer before and I walked off and I, I just sang I was like stunned it's like because you just go for it and then you come back and look at yourself and go oh, I don't believe that <laughs> I don't know that type of music is it's not as complicated in some ways as victim music and in other ways it's more complicated mm-hmm. um, different rhythm expressions and all and um, she has a lot of input and she sings a, a number of the songs too and um, we're just best friends. We're just a good team. Mm-hmm. The other connection that I was going to say that I totally forgot about victims and jelly brains is Nina was, um, again, with cancer. Her cancer came back. But she was well enough to get around, and she met up with Janine. And so I'm asking her about this, and it's like God gave her stamp of approval. Nina said, yes, yeah, stick with her. She's good. Oh, that's good. And, and uh, <laughs> I kind of took that because I always trusted Nina's instincts, and She's totally right. Janine is a very creative drummer and an extremely strong woman, and it's good to have a partner like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I somehow managed cosmically somehow things have threaded, you know, maybe through my own machinations. But um, there's a connection, and it's good for me. So I've known Janine over ten years, but we've been playing for close to nine. At one point, we were playing an awful lot. Right now, we have an album that's done and recorded. We have a couple more songs to remix, and we'll finally have a CD somehow. Yeah. God willing that there's money to put out a CD and put it online also. And um, what I want to do, actually, is um, I want my own record label. Yeah. I mean, record labels exist these days, but a, a label name. And what I plan to do is that record will get done soon in a couple of months. I just need time. We actually, the guy who recorded Victims, Kenny Fink, is helping mix Jelly Brains. Hmm. So there's more continuity wow, there. Wow, that's amazing, yeah. Uh, that's close to done. It's a couple more songs, and there may be some things that need to be tweaked or song dropped to have the experience of running that part. Now, I've done plenty of mixing. I've done record pressing. I've done label design and stuff, but hmm. I have not actually had to promote it or market it and, and all myself. And I was just like, well, I'll try that too. That could be interesting. It'd be totally frustrating. And I'm not sure where that money's coming from. And while that's happening, um, the, my other dream is that I have a lot of live victim tapes. Oh yeah. I would like to make a live victim CD. That would Somehow. be excellent. They'll yeah. be off a cassette. So we'll have to figure out how to make those sonically clean enough that they sound listenable and put together basically what seems like a live set, but will come from different shows, and mm-hmm. we'll make it cohere if we can. And Kenny has these tapes, too, because Kenny Fink was also the victim sound engineer oh, yeah. at many of our shows from 80 or before. And actually, he knew victims before I was in, because he used to own a records recording studio in San Francisco, and 
recorded a few songs with them that never came out. I, I teach jazz history. I have two degrees in music. I know a number of other things about music, but there is a style of music that I, I am. And that's what I will probably do until Link Ray's ghost comes to me and says, uh, son, <laughs> <laughs> you're almost 90. And I stopped when I was 90, and I think you should too. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Pirates. I noticed that was on uh, your website on some flyers, but I wasn't sure of the connection. Um, I am in another band right now called Pirates, and I'm pretty much the guitar player. I help write the songs, but I don't really sing. I started out singing with the band, but... Uh, I'm pretty much the guitar player and all. The connection is that uh, Janine and I, we were at Turk Street Studios in San Francisco, which is actually better known as Francisco Studios, and it's in the Tenderloin. This woman across the hall named Terry had some bands, and we're listening. She's like, her voice is getting better and better. Hmm. And uh, she's playing bass. She's literally, her room's, her door's right across from ours. At one point, there was another break in Jelly Brains, another bass player defection or something or booted one or the other we've <laughs> we've lost them and we've dropped them all kindly we're all friends with all of them but you know you just things don't work out musically and oh, sure you just say okay um we need to go on or the persons themselves decide that so we're without a bass player and i'm sitting around and it's been a month and uh terry says why don't you come write some songs with me and then it just turned into a band oh wow yeah wow, that's so we cool. had the drummer from lethal gospel and we're playing some shows, and we're recording in the studio, uh, the rehearsal studio. It's a little hard. We have to stay up all night to do it, so it's quiet enough. So it's quiet. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's wearying. But, you know, we have a few songs, and uh, it's a different type of music. It's more straight rock. So I get to play a little bit more florid, you know, noodly guitar. Oh, God, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> I get to play more decorative guitar. Yeah. That's a nicer yeah. way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> Janine doesn't want too many guitar solos. Um, yeah, yeah. I understand that. Let's just keep it straight the way it works. Yeah. That's cool. That's Pirates. I Again, that name, I came up with that name, too. So, Hopefully not from an actual pie. but uh. No. No, there was no rats in the pie <laughs> that night. <laughs> well, good. What are the bands today that are worth listening to? That I like? Yeah. Um, you know, I just saw Muse at the Oakland Coliseum. They blew a- AFI right off the stage. Mm. I mean, like, that is just amazing sound. Uh, Black Keys, you know, just two guys making a, a great raw sound, but with all sorts of extra stuff in it. I like Arctic Monkeys. Oh, okay. At, at least, I haven't heard the latest album, but I like this stuff. It's it's very identifiably them. Mm-hmm. Um, I like them better than the Strokes, although the Strokes are great, too. Mastodon, Crack the Sky album. It's a good album. Um, it's a woman... Rachel Flotard, who's the singer-guitar player for Viz Queen, she's great. Mm-hmm. I, I saw her years ago at an afternoon show at Parkside and I said, wow, I like that. You just know sometimes. Yeah. And um, I don't know if they're still happening. Riverboat Gamblers, they have an awesome show. I'm Not Dead Yet It's a great song. I love yeah. that song. And I teach guitar, so a lot of my students are always opening me up to other, you know, singer, performer, guitar player, band stuff. So I, I'm just always, it's always fresh coming in. You know? yeah. And I like the way things are now with um, people just going on YouTube and finding one link to another to another band, and they don't have to depend on, you know, corporate playlists, you know. I had another guest just recently. Um, she's not a musician, but an avid music listener and 
that's what she does. She goes to YouTube and she just starts surfing around and she finds new things and just really enjoys it. And that's basically how she yeah. how she likes to listen to music. Except for your car, radio's dead. Yeah, you know. I mean, I have to have it in the car. It's on. You know, I got six presets, another bank of presets, another bank. You know, eighteen stations and nothing's on. Yeah, <laughs> except for you know if you you know Calax or KUSF. You know, mm-hmm. everything else is going to be the same thing. It's like. I don't have anything greatly wrong with Steve Miller, but, you know, yeah. give me something I've, new. I've heard it. I've heard it enough. I don't need it anymore. Well, I'll hear it, but I don't need <laughs> yeah. to hear it three times in, in yeah. three days. You know, yeah, it's yeah. old. It was great when I heard it regularly or whoever it was, you know. Yeah. What do you think of uh, Soundgarden getting back together? I think you turned um, me on to that news. If they do it right. If they yeah. only play... A couple of select festivals like All Tomorrow's Parties or something like yeah. that. That would be good. And it's worthy to honor what they did do and what they created. But I really would like them to do something a little bit more unique and expressive. I'd like to see that. You know, not that they need to go play clubs. That's, that's yeah. you know, bands. Rolling Stones have played clubs. Yeah. You don't have, they don't have anything to prove. Yeah. <laughs> but um, do something different. And I would like to hear them... Make some new songs, you know. Everybody makes their greatest hits album. They stick on a new song. Yeah, yeah. Hell with that. Fuck that. Make yeah. a new song and put it out as a, a freebie single. Yeah. Just do that. Just for yeah. the hell of making a new song. And say, we can do this, and we're good at this. Yeah. And nobody else can do this. Nobody plays guitar like Kim Thale. Oh, no. Nobody. Yeah. Nobody. There's nobody ever could play that sound. And, yeah. you know, Chris Cornell's a pretty fine guitar player, too. Yeah. And there's nobody with that voice. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, I'm happy for Soundgarden. I'd, I'd like to see something new. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be interesting. I, the, the the video that I saw was Tad Doyle, who's I'm actually a big fan of, singing the Soundgarden songs. On. I saw that too. See? Yeah, <laughs> and it, I love Tad, and I've uh, I've seen him in Seattle, even just hanging out in bars and stuff. But it's not the Soundgarden voice. No, that's for sure. that's okay. They were up there having a good <laughs> they time. They were having a great time. And Chris yeah, Cornell was, was in cool. the audience too. Yeah, yeah. but. Uh, I think the real breakthrough was um, when Pearl Jam was playing somewhere and Chris Cornell came on and they did some Temple of the Dog songs. Yeah, that's and, a great song. And uh, Soundgarden was hanging out there, too. I was like, you know, this is I could sense this thing's moving somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's like, this is not just happenstance, you know. This is moving on. Even though he really tried to make that uh, Scream album happen. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I would have been happy if it happened, but it didn't. Yeah. And all these other, you know, parameters started shifting. We'll see how it goes. Um, yeah. You know, be fine. You know, people keep playing. Chris Novoselic still does stuff, too. Yeah. So I'd like to see him make his own thing, you know. What Dave Grohl he... certainly had his thing. Oh, definitely. I'm actually a fan of the Probot album, which is that. I love the Probot yeah. album. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. I don't know about the last one, the King Diamond one. Yeah. Um, it's good. I like it. Do you know how, how it goes? And there, there's long, long silence. And then there's a Jack then there's Black this song. Thing, I'm going to fuck your mind up. <laughs> that, <laughs> I thought it was awesome. just a great homage to that music that he liked. Yeah. You know? But yeah. I like the fact that he could play all those genres of metal. Because he yeah. grew up loving that stuff. Yeah. And he could shift his drumming and his guitar playing to sort of give an essence of the, all those singers' bands. I think it was phenomenal. Yeah, I, I've yeah. played that album a lot. Yeah, very cool. Any last thoughts? People like to talk their history, I think, generally. Maybe some people are shy about it, but it's our way of reaching other people. You know, this is me. This is my story. This is kind of what I've done. I, there's more I hope to do. 
and um, sometimes it comes across egotistical, and sometimes it's just this is just me or a person just it just gushes out of you. Yeah. yeah, well, I appreciate it. Thanks for oh, coming thank by. <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> I've always been a big fan of your music, and uh, oh, gosh. I, hopefully I'll be able to get out there and uh, check you guys out again live sometime. Yeah, yeah. For more John and Victims, check out myspace.com slash victims. That's spelled V-K-T-M-S. For more Jelly Brains, check out myspace.com slash Jellybrains, J E L L Y B R A I N S. And to check out the Pirates, go to myspace.com slash Pirates Club, P I E R A T S K L U B. Thanks again for checking out Music Life Radio. We're going to end this episode with a full length song from the Jellybrains called Anger. Thanks a lot, and tune in next time. I noticed that you have a thing for stripes in some of your pictures, and maybe I'm just picking that up. Maybe I that's have a bad sense of fashion. That's the only answer for that. <laughs> okay. Well, good. <laughs>